Mugyanatimirandasya Gyananjana Salakaya Chaksurmahitam Dena Tasmai Sri Guru Venamaha Sri Guru Vajnav Guru Kampara Ki Jai Bhaktivinoda Parivar Ki Jai Sri Thakur Bhaktivinoda Thirubhav Mamahotsavati Ki Jai Kaur Pramande So we are all very fortunate to come in the Gaudiya lineage which was um, postured to interface with the Western world and modernity in a way that um, no Gaudiya lineage really had been postured to do other than at the time of its uh, really its inception under the inspired uh, guidance and order inspired by Mahabhu and ordered by Mahabhu he ordered and he inspired both uh, Rupa and Sanatan Goswami's particular and directly to form this uh, lineage he educated them personally and blessed them and empowered them with the Shakti to organize it. Sanatana Goswami was like the architect and um, to give it shape and form and literature, both literature describing the, the precept and literature describing the, the practice and the goal, and so forth. So these uh, were the leaders of the of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's movement, Rupa and Sanatana Goswami. They, notably, they didn't spend a lot of time with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu chanting and dancing in ecstasy like so many of his associates. That They followed his instruction to write books and to excavate the places of Krishna's pastimes, to establish what would be the code of behavior, the decorum, question of Sadachar, established deity worship, which they did, and all these things. And amongst his eternal associates, they're very important to us because they also set an example as sadhakas, and they taught the actual ways of practice, if you will, by their own example. You don't find that in the case of Jagadamanda or in the same way, uh, other such associates, Pundarik Vidinidi, and so forth. So, relatively speaking, then, naturally, we have more of a sense of uh, communion with them, relate with them. They addressed us and our necessity, our needs, and so forth. And they, as I'm saying, they interfaced with the with the world of the time. And they were able to secure the patronage of, of the uh, Rajas. You know, India at the time was under different, ruled by different kings. It wasn't a country unto its, unto its own, but various different kingdoms. And their ability to present what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu represented was so uh, 
refined. And I mean, it's a difficult thing to do. Mahaprabhu was like a great uh, waterfall of ecstasy. If you were to approach the Niagara Falls, which is so awe-inspiring, for example, and powerful, um, you can only stand back and in awe and look at it. You cannot really do much more. But they took that, and, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was like this. It's, after all, like, as we were discussing, Ishikshastakam, he only wrote eight stanzas. Not much of a literary contribution, and the rest of his life uh, was basically madness. He basically lived in madness for his whole life. And that's a little difficult to relate to, to understand. And what to speak of to draw out from that is sophisticated philosophy and, and theology and, and so forth. Of course, again, I did mention that he did instruct Rupa and Sanatan both at Prayag, Sri Rupa and, and uh, Sanatan Goswami in, uh, in uh, Dashashvamedagat in, in Banaras. But even that was for a very short period of time. But they took from that, and then they researched the scriptures, and they found, uh, they came up with a creative way, if you will, to present what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's ecstasy was, was about. They made, if you will, a lake out of the waterfall of Mahaprabhu's love of God that made that approachable. They say you couldn't approach the great Niagara Falls. You would be just consumed by that. But if you could make a lake out of that water, then you could drink from it and bathe in it and swim and, and so forth. So they institutionalized, in a way, the ecstasy of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in as much as an institution seeks to make uh, such a thing or anything available, an idea, a concept, an inspiration, give some form, some shape to it. It's a soft form of institutionalizing because they basically institutionalized through literature, more difficult to corrupt than a more hard form of an institution in, in a form of an actual structure, of an organization, and so forth. This is the literary thin, um, heritage of, of Gaudi Vaishnavism. Everything that subsequent uh, writing, subsequent literature, all drawn from this. This all seeks all 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 derives its validity from by referencing these texts of the Goswamis. As Prabhupada readily taught us, his credentials lied in what? In the fact that he was representing a tradition and not manufacturing anything. He very much taught us although it seems to be misunderstood today to a large extent, that he did not exist or appear in a vacuum that had no past and would have no future. No, but in a lineage with a past, and parampara means a future also. It means literally one after another. So his credit, he taught us, his credibility, his credentials, drew from the fact that he represented the previous tradition, the previous acharya. It's not that the previous acharyas, well, anyway. And, of course, he emphasized the uh, importance of this lineage in terms of ongoing commentary. A fellow 
told me that the most important statement that Prabhupada made was that his books would be the law books for the next 10,000 years. I said, well, I'm not so sure that that's the most important statement that he made. In fact, he can't even find it anywhere in the database, which is a computerized uh, compilation of everything that he said. It doesn't exist there. So maybe he said it to somebody. And I don't mean that. It, I don't think that he that he didn't. It's it, it's it was probably said to somebody, and somebody else passed it along, and and so forth. But to say that it's the most important statement flies in the face of the fact that repeatedly, again and again, with great emphasis, over and over again, Prabhupada made the point that preaching, the dissemination of the uh, the gift of, of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu if it was to be done successfully, it would have to be in consideration of time and circumstance, place, and so forth. This means a necessity for ongoing revelation. Many things in Prophet's books are, are of course, written for a particular time and place, and his comment in some, some texts are relevant to a particular instance or circumstance that was taking place in his institution at the time. And if you were aware of those things, then you could understand, oh, he's writing about this or that, emphasizing here and there and so forth. So times change. Of course, people say, well, you know, what's really changed? Sometimes I hear this also. What's really changed, you know, in the last, what, 30, 30 years? Which, you know, which wife are you on or which husband are you on? I mean, <laughs> things have changed. I don't mean to be, now, those things happen. I understand that. But those are big changes. So many things have changed. There wasn't an internet 30 years ago, even maybe 15 years ago. It's, it changed the whole world. So many things have changed. More things change in one day than you can keep up with. Even the internet can't keep up with all the changes that go on, although it's developed in one sense to help us to do so. Hmm? So many changes. So the need for ongoing literary tradition, commentary, explanation of the teaching, and so forth. This is very much what Prabhupada emphasized. These are the important, comparatively, uh, to the idea that uh, uh, the way it's taken, the statement, my books will be the law books for the next 10,000 years, is, is in an effort to freeze everything and to isolate Prabhupada from the past and from the future, from the past to an extent. Only his book, no other book, even though his book refers to so many other books and tells, if you want more information about this, it can be found in this book, and so forth and so It's a living and a dynamic thing. Prabhupada used to give the example that the scripture is like law books. Scripture is like, like, a, like the law books. So there are so many law books. And when we first hear this, it gives us a kind of a, kind of a security. There's law and it's, it's structured. There's some order to it. It's written down, so it's not made up as you go along. You can go back and look at. You said this here. You said this there. You know, if somebody doesn't have a literary uh, body, a corpus of, of 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 literature, then they can get away with saying it one day, one 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 way, and contradicting themselves the next time. And, 
and so forth. So that gives some security when we hear it. It's scripture, it's this body of literature that's uh, like the law books. So it's the law, you can you can change the law, and, and that's good, and that's comforting, and that's important. We seek uh, some stability. We are off balance. Material life means to be off balance, basically. We're trying to we're trying to dance, but we're not even standing on two feet. We're trying to jump up and touch the stars, but we're not even standing firmly on, on two feet to do so. So this is comforting, but we have to take that analogy and play it out to its fullest to, to appreciate it so that we don't become trapped then only in a, in a partial understanding of what that analogy seeks to tell us. It seeks to, to give us some sense of security and stability and that there's order to the thing and so forth. And that you could get, get a grip on it with your intellect, somewhat of a grip. But if you play the analogy out, as I see, it takes us a step further. Law books serve to help us determine in every moment what the law is. you follow me? In other words, Every moment something new is happening. And then we have to go to the law books to determine how to interpret the law according to that instance. Something happens, some crime is committed or something like that. So then the lawyers, they'll go before the judge and they cite, the law said this at that time, the law said this at this time, and so forth. And therefore, at this time, today, I feel the law should be this based on these previous precedents and so forth. And new laws may come, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And the law, so that law, it, as much as it's firm and secure and static, it's also dynamic. So one who actually understands it and actually derives the security, the, the stability from that, then has the ability to speak about it and present it and apply it in a dynamic way. This is the whole of Vachinti Beta Beta. It means static, dynamic, hmm? moving and not moving, one and different, imminent and transcendent. If Bhagavan is static, must be static. It's like I give the analogy the other day, like love. We're moving, moving, and uncomfortable, and our life is disconcerting. Until we can find love, then we rest. So it's static. We've stopped that kind of unfulfilled movement, movement in, in, in search of fulfillment. We found our love. We can rest, but only for a minute. Because that, that, that love is static in relation to the, the movement of the world, which is movement that's not dynamic. <laughs> it has a movement of its own, a life of its own. It's, it's dynamic. Some philosophers say, that, who advocate Gyan over Bhakti, that, that why move if you're happy? Why move? If you're fulfilled and you have no desire, there's nothing to do. So shanti, shanti, shanti. It's pretty good reasoning. We're moving because we have some desire. Desire means you're not fulfilled. You have some want. So if you have no want, then why move? But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu reason, the Goswami's reason, if you're actually full, then you have no want, then the nature of fullness is that it has a movement of its own. Sometimes you may not want anything, 
but still you may move and celebrate your fullness to dance, for example, for no reason other than joy. I'm fulfilled. It's not a movement in pursuit of fulfillment, but a movement that celebrates fulfillment. This is Leela, the nature of Leela. So, achintya beda beda, one and different, static and dynamic. So the, 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 this analogy of the law books, it also conforms to this, understandably. And so, it may have been an important statement, but even if we want to say it is, although it's not found anywhere, we should understand it in a dynamic way. Prabhupada didn't appear in a vacuum. No. He, he used to say his, his credibility drew from the fact that he represented the lineage, inaccurately so. And, nonetheless, in a dynamic way, with inno- innovation and, and so forth. And that's, you know, he said, I didn't change anything, I never changed anything. This is my credit. I've never changed, he's changed so many things. If you look at Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsati Thakur's mission, and so many people say, oh, he changed so many things. And they, didn't, they thought he didn't represent Bhakti Siddhanta. But this is the real representation, you see, to be able to change details in order to apply the principle is evidence of realization. So, the Goswamis, Rupa Sanatan, they were able to take this ecstasy of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, like this waterfall of love of God, just awe-inspiring, and make a leg out of it, institutionalized it to some extent, so it could be approached in the form of the literature. And as I say, it's more difficult to corrupt that soft form of institution than a harder form of institution, in the form of an actual organization and so forth. Institutions are, I may say that by this, soft or hard form, in the other case, they're important, but they have their limitations also. Potentially they have their limitations. They're formed for a reason. They're formed for us. Although it's true, as Kennedy said, and a nice idea, one should not think how the country can serve you, but how you can serve your country. Nice idea. For that to be accurate, the country has to be such that by serving it, you actually become nourished. I mean, you know, Cuba's Castro is communism is much like that. <laughs> He's asking the people to sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice until there's nothing left. <laughs> They're not getting anything from the sacrifice. There's nothing coming back. Nothing. So two things are there. Really, as much as the organization, in the example of the harder or form of uh, institutionalizing, should be served by the members the ideal of the organization should be to serve the members. Understand? To see to their development, nourishment. This should be how it's organized. If it's organized to see that each individual is allowed to flourish and develop and is inspired, then everything will go on nicely. But when we manage the institution as if the institution and preserving it in and of itself is the goal. And that is at the cost of the enthusiasm of individuals and so forth. And the whole thing has become it's become upside down, it's become distorted. Do you follow me? Just like some of you know my history in, 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 in ISKCON, I was a 
famous for distributing Prabhupada's books, and, and I was doing it just kind of naturally and spontaneously. Nobody told me to do it. I just the way I started distributing books is that I joined the mission in in Santa Cruz, California. Some brahmacharis had come through there, and I was living there with a shaved head and a dhoti, reading the Krishna book and explaining it to people. I didn't know how to join the mission. I had gone to Berkeley to a Gorpurnim festival, and they had a big Murti deity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu they took out in the street in the park. And so I went there, and, um, and everybody was throwing flowers at him, and, I, and he had one hand like this and one hand up, one hand out to the people and the other hand lost in love of God. And so I picked up one of the flowers and I thought, I'll throw it, and if, it, if he catches it in his hand, I'll know he's accepted me. And so I threw it and it landed right in his hand. I've been accepted. And so, you know, in those days, it wasn't real, a real sophisticated kind of plan how to spread Krishna consciousness. We were just ecstatic and absorbed in it. It was contagious. It was catching on by our own enthusiasm. So nobody asked me to join or could understand how enthusiastic I was and so forth. So I went back from Berkeley in Volkswagen van to, to Santa Cruz, and there I... Uh, shaved my head because those people shaved their head and I thought you have to do it like this and you chant and I had the Krishna book and, and so forth and the guy I was living with had a robe and he said you need this more than I do and he, so he gave me the robe so I was wearing that so when these brahmacharis came to Santa Cruz to open temple they heard about this guy up in the Santa Cruz mountains who was like, so they came up and they and they told me you, know, you can't do it like this you can't do it like that you can't. <laughs> which was fine you know, I wanted to know how to do it so then I joined them and then in a couple of months, Prabhupada came to Los Angeles, so they, they took me to Los Angeles. And I was living there, and I thought, uh, as a householder, so I was married before I joined, and my wife was, was pregnant also. So Prabhupada was there, and he said, that at this stage of the pregnancy, she can't go anywhere, so you should stay here in Los Angeles. So I stayed there, and, and I saw all the devotees were very wonderful, and they had all kind of talents and so forth. And I never had any high school education, so I thought, what will I do? How will I be able to contribute? And uh, most of the devotees were working in an incense factory and so forth. I saw this little sign on the board about book distribution. It was going on on Saturday. Some devotees would go out and sell books, and there was a warehouse just full of books. So I thought, I'll try, try that. I'll go out on the street and talk to people. So I just took some books and went out in the street and talk to people, and I thought it was the lowest service, you know, that you could possibly do. If you couldn't do anything else, that's what you did. <laughs> so then, I, anyway, I became successful at that, and uh, as it turned out, it was it was dear to Prabhupada to, to see the literatures distributed. So, and that's the way I was going on. My whole life in ISKCON, I had only, really, my only service was to hear, which was to read the books, and to chant, was to, to just distribute them. I wasn't an administrator or or any other service, just hearing and chanting was all I ever did. And nobody really had to tell me to do it. I was inspired to do that. But at different times they did try to organize it and so forth. And one year, the GBC, which was the commission that had organized the society, called me in in Mayapur in 1975 and said, who's your GBC? Who's, who's overseeing your activities? Because I was raising money, I lived in, you know, out of a little bag, you know, a book bag, and I would fill it with books, and, then, and it was time to go to the next temple, which was kind of at my own discretion, because I wasn't being organized by anybody. Then I would fill it up with my belongings and go to the next 
temple and then empty it out, filled up with books and go out and say, oh, this is my, my system. So I didn't have a GBC. I was in Los Angeles where Karandar was the GBC and Prabhupada invited me to come to India for the first Mayapur festival. So I went via Australia and Karandar, who was the GBC, had left the movement while I was gone. So then that year, I, after coming meeting Prabhupada in, in Mayapur, he called for me and he said, so you're distributing my books. He said, so all year long, you go and preach and then at the end of the year, at this time, Gorpurnim, which is in the springtime in India, you come and spend one month with me in Vrindavan in Mayapur. So that's what I started to do, and I just went here and there, distributing books and, and so forth. So anyway, then then after a couple of years, the GBC, they called me and they said, who is your GBC? I said, I, I don't know. I said, it was Karunder. It was the last one. I, they came kind of embarrassed because he had left. You know. They said, well, you can't, you can't do anything. You can't you have to be organized by somebody and so forth. I said, okay, whatever, you know, whatever, that's fine. Then as they used to do regularly, they would go after three days of meetings with their resolutions, they would go before Prabhupada and then they would read them off and Prabhupada would say yay or nay and this one is good, that one is bad and, and so forth. He wanted us to follow the, his GBC as long as they were Krishna conscious, which wasn't always the case. And so when they came to me, they said, and wasn't a sannyasi at the time. They said, they said so. They, they said, uh, and and Tripurari, and then purpose. What has he done? That boy. What has he done? And they said, well, uh, Prabhupada, he doesn't have a GBC. And Prabhupada, he did not need a GBC. He's doing what I want. This is what GBC is for to see that this goes on. So, <laughs> some of them came to me. Three of them. And they told me that's how I know because I wasn't there. I mean, they, they were nice, and they came. To, you know, we called you and grilled you and so forth. And, and then we went to Prabhupada, and this is what he said: "You don't need a GBC." I said, oh, "I don't feel, feel like that. You know, it's, it's fine. You know, you can put somebody over me. <laughs> that's fine." But the point is, and I don't mean to unnecessarily bring attention to myself, but that the organization it has a purpose to it is to facilitate spontaneous devotion and. and Voluntary participation is just, it's a, it's a really a unique kind of management, if you will, to elicit voluntary participation. It's because it's all voluntary. We didn't come here under for, to follow some rule. We came under the affection of our Gurudev, representing the all affectionate Krishna. We we agreed to come under the rule of that, and to organize it in such a way as to facilitate it. That's we can. That's fine. But if it's to oppress it, then it becomes counterproductive. So this, this kind of institution is to facilitate individual expression. Once another godbrother of mine, uh, Gopavrindapal, a nice devotee, he, we were in, in Vrindavan and he approached me and said, you know, we should organize some system so that everybody who goes out and sells books knows what to say. Because oftentimes they don't know what to say, they say the wrong thing, and this and that. So I said, I don't know, that sounds overbearing, you know. There's a lot of people out there, and different questions are asked all the time, and so forth. And I didn't have as much interest in it. Anyway, then I went, and I had taken sannyas just uh, the year before from Prabhupada. And so then I heard that, this is the next day, then I heard that Prabhupada was going to cook. So I went down to, I was going to watch Prabhupada cook. 
or help him cook. So I came to see Prabhupada and he was taking a massage and I, he said, he said, what can I do for you? He said, I said, well, I heard you were going to cook, Prabhupada, so I came to, you know, although that was a major event. So he said, no, and he said, well, they're cooking, fine. So I don't know where that came from. Anyway, there I was, you know, with Prabhupada and then he began to talk and I was a newer sannyasi, so he said, I can cook with wood, he said. Then he began to talk about how he could live in a forest with nothing and you know, and so on and so forth. He was kind of preaching to me as a young sannyasi. It was very inspiring, the things he was saying, how to be independent and and so forth. And then in comes Gopavrindapal, who I guess had heard it. Parameshwar went to see Prabhupada, so he thought I was going to give Prabhupada his idea, you know, or <laughs> something like that. So the Prabhupada entertained his, his question and so forth, and, and uh, his proposal, which he made then to Prabhupada at that time. And Prabhupada said, I think it is a little artificial. Gopa responded, he said, well, you know, you gave a quota system for everybody, that they, everybody has to collect a certain amount of money. Prabhupada said, I have never done that. That is Tamal Krishnamarsh. I have never done that. And then he said, preaching is spontaneous, he said. Just like after Brahmarsh, Krishna is giving him inspiration in his heart. He quoted, Tesham Satata Yuktanam Bhajatam Pitipogam, Dadami Buddhi Yogam Tam, He was loving Krishna. Krishna gives them intelligence from within how to come to him. And each preacher is getting his own inspiration in this way. It is going on. You cannot legislate it artificially and so forth. So, again, this principle to foster, it should organize, the Asian should be to foster spontaneity. That was interestingly enough why um, it goes to the core of what Gaudiya Vaishnavism is about in a sense. Prabhupada was very much against the centralization of his temples. He wanted freedom of individual expression. Bhakti, in one sense, is like this. Do your own thing. That's what it's about. Sounds odd. Do your own thing. Prefaced only by this. Know what you are. Know what you are and then do your own thing. This is Vedanta. Know what you are. And Bhakti, do your own thing. You understand me? Know what you are. What is matter? What is consciousness? Did your consciousness not matter? And realize that. And then, do your own thing. It means love Krishna. Fly as high as you like in the sky of spiritual desire and spiritual uh, you know, individuality, prejudice. Love Krishna in this way or love him in that way, as comes from your heart. So it's both things. Again, it's one and different. The Vedanta is one. The philosophy is one. It's Abhed, non-different. The philosophy is one. But the religious expression of it, the bhava, the ecstasy, which is the bade of the bade abed equation, that is different and varied. People pine for unity as much as they pine for diversity at the same time. Both things. Bhakti and Vedanta. It means like one and different. So, this is what the texts are about, so the Goswamis. This is how they wrote. Then you take an organization like was formed by Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, taking the inspiration of Bhakti Vinod. Bhakti Vinod was called what? Seventh Goswami. As the original Goswamis interfaced with the world of the time, they got the patronage of so many kings 
At that time in Vrindavan, it was thought because of the Goswami's preaching, a king was nobody if he didn't have a, a temple in Vrindavan for himself and one for his queen. Not for them, but for of Radha and Krishna, for the king to worship in, the queen to worship in. These Goswamis were preaching like this in such a way they were beggars. They were like mendicants. They had nothing. But they got the patronage of the whole Raj of India. You know, money is only as valuable as how you spend it. When you have lots of money, then who's really rich or wealthy depends on what artwork you've acquired, what type of furniture you've got, and so forth. So it was what kind of temple you had. If you had a temple in Vrindavan, you were somebody amongst the Rajas. And this was the preaching of the Goswami. So they were, my point is that they were interfacing with the powers of the world. They were really in the world, but, as it said, not of the world, but they were really in it. They were really up-to-date and contemporary. And if you study their literature, you see, in some places, they didn't go, they didn't come out fully because they understood the climate of the time. In, in, in establishing a sampradaya, a tradition, they took the temperature, they assessed the climate of the times, where people were at socially and religiously and so forth. And Chaitanya Dev did the same thing. He didn't, for example, go against or overturn social religious norms unless they obscured spirituality. If they obscured it, he let it in. Do you understand what I'm saying? He allowed Haridas Thakur to join his group, although he was an outcast by Hindu social-religious consideration. By Hindu social-religious consideration, he shouldn't have been allowed to be involved. He was untouchable. Mahaprabhu overturned that and involved him and so many others. At the same time, it was a social-religious custom that someone from an untouchable family, as it was thought, couldn't enter the Jagannath temple. Mahaprabhu didn't try to cross over that, did he? He didn't protest that Haridas was not allowed to enter the temple. Overtly, he didn't protest. Even when you preach, then you have to assess the climate and you can only go so far. What Mahaprabhu did in that instance, of course, is he is Jagannath. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna. He is the deity, moving. He went to Haridas every day. Haridas was not allowed by the social religious custom to come to the temple every day. But God went to him every day. Gave him a place on the beach, a garden, house, and every day went there and gave his darshan to him. Now, intelligent persons will put that together. <laughs> you understand? Thinking people, spiritual people, will put that together and understand the point. But the example I'm giving is, is to illustrate this point, that in preaching, you're going to have to assess the climate, and you can only go so far sometimes. So this Goswami's literatures are like that too, therefore the need for ongoing literature. Therefore you find a later-day commentator appears to contradict the previous commentator. Jiva Goswami gives a conservative analysis in his comment on Rupa Goswami's Bhaktira Samrita Sindhu with regard to uh, birth in a Brahmin family and the right to practice uh, the archan in the temple, deity worship and so forhth Later, Vishwanath Chakravitaka, maybe a century later, the climate was different. He could come out fully with the full face of bhakti. So, as the Goswamis, anyway, were very dynamic in their outreach and preaching, and 
affecting the, the uh, I mean, they were affecting the most. It's like if you were today a Gaudiya Vaishnava and you're influencing senators and congressmen in, 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 a, in a meaningful way, that they, would, they, would, they wouldn't miss your program if you were having a function. They wouldn't dare miss it. Something like that. Of course, they do it for political concern, but because they want your constituency to vote for them. But anyway, the, the, the kings weren't worried about that. They were kings. They weren't going to get voted out. So anyway, this is how powerful their preaching was. And centuries later, this Bhaktivinoda Thakur was called the seventh Goswami to be study his mission. And so we see it was very analogous, his work, what he did. They established Vrindavan, the place of Krishna's pastime. They wrote Bhakti Shastra. They established behavior, decorum for the devotees, and they interfaced with the with the modern world. Bhaktivinotaku did the same thing. The modern world was not India. He interfaced with the modern world. He established the place of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's birth and pastimes. No one has written about Navadip Dham with such revelation as Thakur Bhaktivinoda. As the Goswamis revealed Vrindavan, he revealed Navadip birthplace of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, all the lila places of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he envisioned them, his Namadrita Mahatmya, there's one such uh, book that does that. He established a code of behavior for Vaishnavas when Gaudiya Vaishnava was very misbehaved and very dynamic in his outreach. And following in the wake of that came Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, who formed the first kind of institution, hard institution, as I mentioned rather than just a literary institutionalization of the ecstasy of Mahaprabhu. The vision for interfacing with the modern world and giving life to Gaudiya Vaishnavism so that it wouldn't be obscured as the world went on came in Bhakti Thakur in a way that it came in the original Goswamis to the extent that we don't see that anywhere in the succession. What was the depth of the realization of Bhakti Thakur that he could take the subject and interface it with the world and make change details. The tendency of the, of the neophyte is to become attached to the details and identify the details with the principles, when the details are meant to really deliver the principle, and they can be adjusted according to time and circumstance. So a whole sampradayak, a whole lineage can become bogged down by that, and that's largely what happened. And Bhakti Vinodhaku renovated the whole thing, gave life through his vision. And Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, his follower in succession, took that vision and gave shape to it. And Bhakti Vedanta Sang, Prabhupada Agra Marsh, then took that shape, basic shape given by Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, and the vision of Bhakti Vinodhans took it all over the world. This is what he did historically. And it formed his organization, ISKCON, supposed to be the house in which everybody could live. Very dynamic in its scope and outreach, and uh, very flexible. If you think of Prabhupada, I mean, Prabhupada came from Calcutta in the previous, you know, two centuries back. Even America was extremely conservative comparatively to today. What to speak of Calcutta, India? He was a flaming liberal, Prabhupada, flaming liberal. I mean, if you look at it in context, of his upbringing, birth, and so forth, and absolutely liberal and dynamic. Uh, of course, then we will see him in a particular way, and ha- if we don't see him accurately in a holistic way, 
we think he's very conservative. Speaking the way he did, but compared to where he came from and how people thought of things. It was his so our movement is a movement of like this, liberals, <laughs> flexible people, visionaries actually in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, who, who can really uh, continue to inject uh, life in the thing by the real, realization that enables them to apply it according to time and circumstance. So it doesn't get frozen in time, become atrophied and stuck, can become a routine and the meaning behind the detail is lost, and then you're not getting anything from the detail, even you're doing it over and over again because you think the detail is the, is the goal itself, and so forth. Now, this is always also a little disconcerting, but you should know, as much as it's encouraging, spiritual life is not black and white. It's very gray. We may paint a black and white picture of it in the beginning to help us. It's not this. It's this, and there's something to that. But once you get inside, the further you go, oh, it's very. There's so many shades of gray. We should be careful because we want something that will give us security in the sea of doubt. This is the world of doubt. We want something to give us security and stability. But as I've said it before, I'll give me an example. Real stability comes in love, and love. It's full of uncertainty, isn't it? It's both things. It's certainty, but it's full of uncertainty at the same time. The spiritual life is like that. Therefore, if we want an institution or guru or saint to answer all the questions for us, we've misunderstood. You understand? They're going to make us, if they teach us properly, to think. They're going to give us some parameters within which to think unlimitedly. They want us to stand on our own two feet, and there's a little, you know, people join institutions so that they don't have to think. That's why they join often, many, many people. Rules suppress thinking, that's what they do. Now there may be a place for that if my mind is just wild. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> but if it, tames, if it gets tamed by the rule, which is the purpose of it, then I should be able to think based on what the rule has done for me and be alive. Like Sridhar when we came to him, he said, your Guru Maharaj told you not to think. He stopped your mind with his ecstasy, suspended your, your reasoning. He just did whatever he said because of his affection. And when he did that, he put so many things in your heart. You don't even know all the things that he's put in your heart. Now you say he sent you to me. Okay. So, my business then is to tell you to start thinking now in his absence about all those things that he put inside of you and how to apply them in his absence in a dynamic way which is to follow in his footsteps. If you want to follow Prabhupada, you're going to have to be very dynamic, right? Not static, because that's what he was. It's not that Prabhupada did this, Prabhupada did this, Prabhupada did this, I'll do like him. I'll get up at that time, I'll say it. I speak like, you know, broken English, you know, like I'm an it from India. And, you know. <laughs> this is not following Prabhupada. Hmm? You understand? And it goes beyond that also. You know, and that's, that's, it may not be so easy to do so. Then if it's not, we feel it, then we should follow somebody who have competences doing that. And we still, we still need some nourishment in order to 
to do that, then be honest about it. Take that nourishment and grow. So, this is the kind of, I want to say, lineage that we come in. It's very dynamic. And we call ourselves the Bhaktivinoda Parivar. The Parivar, this is what Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthitaka said. When he was asked, what is your Parivar? I mean, what is your lineage? Hmm? What is your family, it means, Parivar? What associate of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who was here when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was here, does your lineage stem from? And this is the answer he would give. Oh, we are in the Bhakti Vinod Parivar. It's, it's really interesting because Bhakti Vinod Thakur appeared about almost 500 years after Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So he wasn't there when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu appeared. It was Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur's way of saying, he's the seventh Goswami. You can understand. He is an eternal associate of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And he's appearing now, 500 years later, to give life to the mission of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And to refocus it, give it life. And uh, if you study carefully the, the contribution of Bhaktivinoda you can see the analogy is very accurate. He wrote hundreds of books, like the Goswamis wrote some, you know, the Goswamis wrote so many books. There's something in, in, in Vrindavan near Sanatana Goswami's Bhajan Kutir, no, his Samadhi, his Samadhi, place of where he's entombed, his body's entombed, called the Granta Samadhi. It's a little tomb where so many books were put, written by the Goswamis, which were thought to be too high to distribute. They just put them in a tomb. So it said, anyway. Anyway, this uh, Bhaktivinoda wrote, like, so many books also. They wrote so many books. They excavated the places of Vrindavan. What was Vrindavan? People didn't know what Vrindavan was. The Goswamis were commissioned by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to go there and empowered by him to have the vision of Krishna in Vrindavan even today, and they could say, oh, this is where this happened, this is where this happened, Krishna did this here, this here, and then a king would come build a, build a monument there. And that part of the river, they build a ghat, people would come and celebrate that, and a temple over here, and so forth. They would kind of give shape, the Samis would give the, they were the architects with their vision, and then someone would come and build a building there, and so forth. So Bhaktivinoda did this in Mayapur, in relation to Gore, who is Krishna, and found his birthplace and his place of passing, and a temple was built uh, there. He begged door to door in Calcutta to secure the funding to erect what he called Adbhuta Mandir, the wonderful temple in Mayapur, the birthplace of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Then he commissioned his disciple, Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthik Thakur, to organize something around this. So he did, he took that place, Mayapur, Yogapith of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And there, from there he organized his mission. And again, the Goswami set the standard of behavior for Gaudiya Vaishnavas. Bhaktivinoda Thakur was setting the standard of behavior for Gaudiya Vaishnavas in relation to so much misbehavior on the part of, of Gaudiya Vaishnavas. So it's a very accurate analysis. And then, the, and then if, you, if you study Bhaktivinoda's progress, which he himself relates in um, Swalikata Jivana, a letter he wrote about his life, a long letter to his other son, the late Prashad. He showed how he goes through the different stages of bhakti. That's incredible. Incredible. You can understand uh, that uh, you know, people pick up where they left off. Next life, you'll pick up where you left off. Quickly we'll come to the stage. If there are any offenses, then th- that will come uh, and your birth will be set. They'll be cleared off first. Then suddenly your life as a devotee will 
manifest. Huh. And then quickly you'll come immediately to the stage where you left off. Now the work at hand, to go to the next stage. You study Bhaktivinoda Thakthik, went quickly through every stage to Prem. <laughs> so quickly like that. Like this, one, two, three, four, five, and then this stage, and this stage, and this That's where he left off is the point. That brain coming from there, that side to here. Hmm? So he said, Bhakti Sandra, we come from the Bhakti Vinod Puribar. This is our Puribar. This is our family. He gave the vision. We are following that. Prabhupada used to say, my movement is the movement of Bhakti Vinod Thakura. His vision, we are trying to give. Uh, shape to and, 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 and distribute. So we are very honored, proud, humbled to be affiliated with, with uh, this lineage. It has given life to, to Gaudiya Vaishnavas. Were it not for Thakur Bhakti Vinod and those in his Paribhad who got life from his vision. You have to understand, people were joining Bhakti Siddhanta. Bhakti Vinod Thakur was giving the vision. Bhakti Siddhanta organized that vision. And people were joining Bhakti Siddhanta, who would never have joined Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Bengalis, and this is a Bengal, you know, religion in a way. They never would have joined because of how it was being presented and represented. They never would have joined. Educated people were joining. It was revolutionary, and he had moths, which means monasteries, hundreds and hundreds of monks and so forth. It was like that commitment, in other words, not just to get initiation and go away. Committed. It's very, very powerful. And, and then, of course, this then came to the Western world and all over the world through his disciple, Agurdev. And because of this, because of our lineage, because of we're Bhakti Vinod Parivar, Gaudiya Vaishnavism has currency in the world today. It would be one of the most obscure religious traditions of the, of the, in the whole world were it not for Bhakti Vinod and those who took his vision.